I was born in the South, but I am not a Southerner. Um, got a, a couple of announcements just to let you know. So we did we did get uh, Ariel all settled in to, uh, to her school. And if you want to see pictures of things, I'll be glad to show them. I'm not going to show them up here and bore you with all of that. Um, but... Um, it is a, it's a blessing to be back. It was a blessing to watch the service from last Sunday. Um, and uh, I know it can be, it can be uh, sometimes there can be these little frustrations. Donald was uh, frustrated with his microphone. Um, also, I think we may have to have a podium custom made for him. Um, just, just, you know, uh, he needs to be able to, to lean on that thing. Um, that, that one looked like, it looked like he had brought in a, uh, like a doll furniture and set it up for himself um, but uh, uh, and you know the music and everything was able to watch it on YouTube after we attended uh, the church service of the place we went um, and I wanted to just share Ariel is visiting a, a church today and so as she was um, going there she sent uh, Nicole and I text messages and I just want to share them because uh, I think it just is very much Ariel she by the way um, she told us, and I've told several people of the church before, she said when she, she's looking for a church down in Virginia, and she's like, I want to find a church where I don't just know everybody's name, I know everybody's pets' names, um, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, but this is what she shared. She said, um, she's taking a shuttle, and she said, uh, my feet don't touch the ground of the shuttle, which is pretty aerial. Then a couple minutes later, they have cinnamon donuts with a big, smiley, wonderful face. Also kind of reminds me of Mimi and Grampy's and Bop-Bop's church. That's Nicole's parents and then my dad. Um, my dad is Bop-Bop. Um, and, then, and, she was, and then Nicole was like, aw, you know, all this stuff. And then Nicole, being Nicole, said, cinnamon donuts is a sign. Um, and apparently, so Ariel said, I think there are other college students, but I just figured out they have a balcony and that's where they're all sitting. Um, so... Uh, and then Nicole said, are there a lot of people? She said, I think so. It's like more than Bedford Road, but I think it's mostly college students that I can't see. <laughs> so anyway, she, uh, she, she's down there trying to find a church, and she's settling in and doing everything that uh, she's doing. And thank you for uh, prayers and gifts and everything uh, that you all did. Uh, a couple of things are going on in the church, just to be aware. We're going to have a... We have a um, of a meeting after service for um, for the music team. We're just looking to get uh, in some planning for the second half of this year and and then into 2023. Um, so we'll be meeting down in the teen room after service, probably about 15, 20 minutes after service ends. Um, we'll we'll head down there. Um, and then uh, we had scheduled a picnic, a regional church picnic for September 10th. Um, Mike, let me know. We're just going to go ahead and cancel that. We just haven't had a lot of interest. Um, and, and so we're going to try to plan that again. We're not going to give up, but we're going to plan that again. September 11th, we're going to have an outdoor service and barbecue as long as the weather cooperates. Um, and that'll be good. Um, and then September 18th, we've got Child safety training, if you work uh, with people under the age of 18 in our congregation, um, it is actually required by our safety guidelines that you go through this training every two years um, and keep it refreshed uh, so that we're aware uh, of everything that's happening there and you're aware of what, what it takes to keep uh, kids uh, safe in the church service. Um, 
and uh, and so that's kind of the things that are going on. I want to get right into the scriptures. I'm going to dive right in. So uh, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and we're going to get started. Oh, 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 sorry. Before I have a word of prayer, I want to let you know Bible studies are starting up uh, again. And so um, I knew there was something else that I wanted to mention. Uh, Ray, uh, the group that, that Ray... Um, Ray Pouliot usually leads. Mike Trask is going to be leading it. Um, begins September 20th uh, on Tuesday, September 20th at 7 p.m. The Wednesday group will will get our start time. It's a joint you and Mike, right? Um, and t- Bob is giving me a 21. So the day, I, all right. So September 21, um, 21st, the Wednesday group will be started. Um, we'll get started, and then hopefully we're looking at probably after Christmas uh, to do the aperture studies. We are still looking at that. Um, appreciate uh, everybody's prayers uh, on the process for me to finish up the dissertation so that I have the freedom to do uh, that, which was the original plan. Um, all right, with all that said, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Oh, one more thing. Um, the ladies' ministry is going to get started on September 17th. Um, and so, uh, 17th? Yeah, 17th. Um, and so this is a once a month thing. The ladies get together at the church. They uh, spend some time together in the Word. And so, uh, we'll be getting more information about that and the Bible studies and everything out, um, once we, once we kind of get through Labor Day and get things, um, rolling for September. Okay, that's it. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, as we once again come to your Word and, um, we reflect upon it. And we look again to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We are, we are hoping to be humbled before him. Uh, sometimes uh, we, we say we're humbled before him, but um, we are still standing in our own power and our own abilities. And we, we ask that as you, as you move through the written word to reveal to us, Jesus, the living word, that as we see him, we are transformed by what we see. Not just superficially, but internally. That you alter our hearts and our minds and our thoughts to love like him, to serve like him, to be like him. To draw close to the one who is all. We pray this in his name, by the spirit he sent to us. Amen. Let's take a look at John chapter 7. Uh, I started a couple weeks ago looking at John John 7 um, and Jesus at uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, if you remember, um, we're going to dismiss the kids. All right, let's go ahead and do that. Um, my brain is still a little bit stuck on the highway. Um, but uh, we, if you remember... Uh, when we got into chapter 7, Jesus is going to the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. It's a fall festival. Um, it is uh, the kind of the end of the season, uh, the growing season, and everybody goes to Jerusalem. They spend a week there. Um, and his brothers had told Jesus he should go. Jesus said it wasn't his time. His brothers left. Then Jesus immediately went. And then Jesus was teaching in the middle of the feast, which is not the time that you're supposed to be teaching, and it caused a lot of confusion. And we're going to dive into this confusion uh, in John chapter 7 um, because of the responses to Jesus. Now, what I want you to watch, and we're, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I want you to watch the responses to Jesus. Um, and I'm going to start in verse 14. I'm actually not going to 
preach through a lot of this. I just want to bridge from two weeks ago. In verse 14, in the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So the first response is, uh, where does this guy get his authority? Why is he speaking? And Jesus challenges that. And then in verse 20, the crowd says, you have a demon who is seeking, um, you have a demon because he says that they're trying to kill him because they were. Um, and, and so you have this response, you have a response of where do you get your authority? Then you have a response of, well, you're, you're just crazy, which is really what they're, they're saying when they say he has a demon. Um, you're crazy. In verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they, can, they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Kind of the question, um, is this guy worth listening to? And yet they say, but we know where this man comes from. We know he's from Galilee. And when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. I think that's an interesting statement, because there's nothing in the Bible that says you won't know where he comes from. In fact, uh, the prophets actually say he will come from Bethlehem. And Jesus is teaching in the temple. He's, a- he's answering their questions. Verse 31. Verse 30, 31. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. So there's another response. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So there's people that believe. So there's, there's people that question his authority. There are people that think he's crazy. There are people that are trying to kill him. And there are some people who are believing. Um, they're believing in him. And now we're going to get into verse 32. Okay? So, and we're going to start in verse 32. Then the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. So all these responses. They've heard all these responses to him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, this is the first time that Jesus will start saying things like this, that you cannot follow me. You're not going to be able to get to me. And the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, excuse me, and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Isn't it fascinating that their response is, well, if Jesus is going to go somewhere we can't find him, that means he's going to go somewhere that we don't want to go. I mean, it's not like there's like a wall. I mean, it wasn't like there was a barrier to them traveling out into the rest of the Roman Empire to hang out with the Jews that were spread through the empire. They could have done it if they wanted to. They just didn't like doing it because they thought the rest of the Jews in the empire were dirty and filthy and gross. Icky. All right. Um, And so they're thinking, oh, so Jesus is just going to go hang out with Greeks speaking Jews? Ew. We're not going to be able to follow him there. That's gross. Right? That's really legitimately the response to him. And, and Jesus just kind of leaves that, right? He just kind of leaves it hanging. He doesn't say anything. Then in verse 37, 37, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, I'm going to get into the, the topic of the Spirit much later when we get into the last few chapters of John, when Jesus actually, he breathes on his disciples at one point, um, and gives them the Spirit of God, uh, chapter 20 and verse 22. Uh, we'll get to that in a few months. Um, but I want, I want to set the stage for this so that you understand what's happening. Doesn't it seem a little bit odd that Jesus throws out this metaphor of if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink? Um, where does this come from? Well, believe it or not, this is actually what happened on the last day of this feast. Um, on the last day of Sukkot, the high priest would go down to the pool of Siloam um, and he had a golden pitcher um, and he would fill it with water, and then they would lead this big procession up into the Jerusalem, up into the Temple Mount, and at the altar, at the great altar outside of the temple, where everybody could see it, the high priest would pour out an offering of water to God. Now, this isn't in the Bible. It's, it doesn't appear in the scriptures. Um, it was something that seems to have been picked up over time, and we don't really know where it comes from, but it's referenced in, in the Talmud, so we know that they did do it, um, but we don't know why they did it. Now, there were, there's a few reasons they might have done it. Um, in the book of Zechariah, the Feast of Tabernacles is associated with the giving of rain. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a kind of a, a tie um, there, um, this idea that, that when, uh, you, when you get to this, the end of the growing season, you had to thank God for the rain that came before. Um, it was kind of an act of thanks and then looking forward to the future. So the prophet Zechariah does that. Um, and then in 1 first, in first Samuel chapter 7, there's a reference to a practice that, is, again, it's not in the law, it's not in the Jewish law, but it seems to have been something that people did, which is they would pour out water as a sign of repentance. Um, now, there, there's a. it seems to be, because they live in a desert area, the idea of pouring water out in a, one of the dry seasons, that was kind of an act of sacrifice, because water was precious. You, you, you needed a lot of water um, stored up to get through the dry season. And I talked a few weeks ago about the pools in Jerusalem, how huge they were, 10 times the size of an Olympic pool, 40 feet deep, um, and that was to store water for the dry season. Um, but um, we're not exactly sure why they did this, but they did do it as part of the feast. So if we take that and we put it in context to what Jesus just said, and we put it, or was about to say, and we put it in context of what John recorded when he is talking to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, when he says to her that he has water that she could drink and not be thirsty anymore. So, so John is kind of tying these two events together. But Jesus makes this statement probably during this ceremony. This is the great feast. This is the great day. And so it seems as if this is happening as that procession is going along. Now you can imagine how annoying it would be. If you're the high priest in all of your regalia and you went down and you're doing this thing you've been doing for a while, um, uh, and we know from elsewhere in the scriptures, the high priest did not have a high view of Jesus. They, they were not fans of him. Um, but you are going through procession, doing all your regalia, everybody's excited, oh, he's going to pour out the water. And then some dirty Galilean rabbi 
standing on the margins, start shouting, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Now, do you realize what Jesus is saying? It's important that we understand what Jesus is saying. In Exodus chapter 17, when the people of Israel were thirsty in the wilderness, God had Moses strike a rock and water flowed. The one who provides water to drink for the people of Israel is their God. Jesus is making a declaration in the midst of one of the feasts of the Jews. Guess who I am. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Right? He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, Jesus seems to be uh, glossing a couple of passages of scriptures. Uh, Psalm 105, verse 41, Isaiah 48, 21. Uh, you can look those up on your own when you get a chance. Um, but he is drawing that Old Testament idea of God as the provider of water. And, and we live in a, in a relatively um, watered society. Uh, now we, we, of course, if we live in Merrimack, you know that in Merrimack, the rule is we're just always on a water band, right? This is just, just a rule in Merrimack. Uh, we have seven pumping stations. None of them are always working. Um, we're always rebuilding things. We're always on a water band. Um, and it took me, I think I lived here for years before, five or six years before I realized odd even was tied to your address, Right? Didn't realize that, you know. Um, there's all kinds. Of, of course, I don't water my lawn. You can tell that when you see my lawn. Um, but uh, I didn't understand. I mean, it, this whole water band thing. But we live in a world where water is being transferred and pumped and filtered and changed, and we're able to provide ourselves water. There, are, there are massive, massive reservoirs taking care of every city um, in the country. One day, if you really want to see something cool, um, go online and look up all the reservoirs that feed. New York City's water supply. They are literally spread throughout the entire state of New York. Huge amounts of water. I mean, just enormous amounts of water to supply that city. But you never see it, right? It's all underground. It's all, it's all kept kind of private and quiet. You don't see it. But let me tell you something. If it failed, you'd realize right away. Um, and so we, ha we live in a, in a society that's kind of water-rich, but the, the Israelites, the, the Jews, they live in a society that's water poor. If you, don't, if, you don't, if you don't store up the water that you need, you go thirsty. Um, if you're not prepared, if you don't know the cycle, the seasons of the year, your crops are going to dry out. Your, your family's going to starve. They live in a society where drinking water isn't just something that your doctor tells you to drink eight glasses a day. Um, it is something that if you don't have water, you die. And Jesus is drawing from that idea and he's saying, come to me. Come to me and drink. He said, because when you drink of the water that I'm offering, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Now here's what's interesting about this. Jesus is not only glossing the passage I mentioned, Psalm 105, Isaiah 48. He's also glossing the prophet Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel twice says that God will take our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And what did Moses strike to make the water flow? The rock, the stone. The improbable miracle of God transforming something dry and barren. And is there anything more dry and barren than a rock? I mean, you walk outside and you go, wow. So uh, if you've ever been to um, the valleys of, of Virginia, their dirt is different. Um, Nicole, and I don't mean to embarrass her, but I'm going to anyway. Um, we were at the, we rented this house and we're out there and Nicole came in. She goes, you know, this dirt, it's crazy. It's, it's like clay or something. I went, no, Nicole, it is clay. Um, and, and the, the, these valleys with the valley where Lynchburg is, it had been, a during the, uh, deglaciation as the glaciers melted, um, it was basically a huge river, and it's silted up with all of this clay, and the soil is clay. And so as a result, even the grass is gross. Like, I mean, the grass was like hard and crazy. It's just odd. It was like the stuff we take out of our lawns um, that we consider weeds. That's all they can get to grow on this red, disgusting, even the dogs didn't like the dirt. And dogs always like dirt. My dogs are, I mean, my dogs are peculiar anyway, but our dogs are like, wipe our paws. Get this off of us. Um, it, it's, it's a gross soil, right? But even with that, even with a, with a disgusting dry soil, there's still water, right? I mean, I, our front, our front yard, we call it the desert because the, there's no, it's like gravelly and disgusting. But if you dig down a little bit, you're going to hit water. But in Israel, that's not how it works. It's just stone. The whole country is limestone. I mean, they, they, in order to get things to grow um, in, in Judea, the, the southern part of Israel, up north it's, it's more fertile, but, but in the south, what you do is you spread about a half an inch of topsoil, and you only plant varieties of plants that spread their roots out straight instead of down, because there's nothing to grow there. It's just rock. And, Jesus, and Ezekiel said, when Ezekiel quoting God, God says, I'm going to take your heart of stone, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Then Jesus says, if you drink from the water that I give you, rivers of living water will flow from your heart. God will transform you. God will change you. Um, now Jesus has already, he has already caused controversy with the first sermon he's preached during this feast. And they think that they've managed his scuttlebutt. They think they've managed to get him quiet. They send people to arrest him. They don't manage to do it, but they're, they're trying it. Okay, we've dealt with him. We've answered his questions. Now he stands up and basically declares himself to be the God of the Old Testament. Now he's talking about giving the Spirit of God, this river of water. He's talking about the Spirit of God. And again, I'll get to the metaphor there. But in verse 40... When they heard these words, and here's another set of responses. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Now, what do they mean by the prophet? 
they're, they're saying this is the guy who is coming before the Messiah. So they're still kind of missing it. But they're not missing the scriptural allusion. They understand he's quoting Ezekiel. He's glossing Isaiah. Others said, this is the Christ, the Messiah. But some said, and they're still hung up on this, is this the Christ? Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? You know, what's interesting is that John never references Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Matthew talks about it. Luke talks about it. John never does. John never says anything about Jesus being from Bethlehem. Um, And they're asking this question, shouldn't he be coming from Bethlehem? Now, here's the interesting thing. John, the author of this, knows that Jesus is from Bethlehem. He knows that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And the reason, by the way, that John's gospel doesn't record that is it's, it's written several decades after. Right? John is probably written around 90, 95 AD, whereas the other gospels are written you know, 40, 45 AD. Um, so it's, it's written later, and people are already familiar. They already know Jesus from Bethlehem. But the question that they're asking is an important question. So there was division in verse 43. There was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So, and here's where I want to go with this. Now Jesus is presenting this really challenging statement. And the people that are around Jesus are having a legitimate conversation about what he's saying, what it means. I want you to, to, don't rush into the next verses. I want you to identify with these people. They're there and Jesus has challenged the status quo and the people that are there are legitimately trying to figure out how to respond to it. Some people are saying he's a prophet. Some people are saying he's the Christ. Some people are saying, doesn't he come from Galilee? Are we missing something? There's a conversation going on about Jesus. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. See, so often um, we want to just get to the answers. We view the Bible as like a cheat sheet, right? So I just want the answer to this question about Jesus. I just want to know what's the standard answer to the question, right? And I'm sure all of us have been in sessions like this. How many of you have ever had like a standardized training at work? where you had to sit through questions and you just went there and go, no matter what I answer, it's going to be wrong, so can you just tell me what I'm supposed to answer? Like, like, like sometimes you get these, I, I remember when I was working for the National YMCA, um, I, was teaching, uh, I was teaching martial arts to little kids, and, um, and I had to go through like safety training, like for the, you know, how to train little kids, and it was an online um, test, that you had to take at the end to prove that you had read all the information. And I'm si- and you just sit there, you're like, okay, which answer am I supposed to give? Like, just tell me the answer I'm supposed to give so I can fill it in, so I can get a passing grade, so I can get back to work, right? It's kind of a thing. Sometimes we treat our faith like that. We're like, we just want a standard question. What, what's the standard answer? 
But here, Jesus intentionally asks a provocative question or makes a provocative statement to generate a conversation because belief often comes out of conversation. Right? Belief often comes out of challenge. If you just take the answers from somebody else, do you really believe what you're saying? Or are you just trying to pass the test? One of the things that always frustrated my students when I taught was often I would ask questions with no definitive answer. And it drove kids nuts. I believe, Christy, were you in the class where I gave a quiz where the answer to every question was Jesus? Yes. All right. Um, The kids got so frustrated with me because I would ask questions that weren't word for word from what I studied and so, or what I taught. So one day I handed out a quiz where literally the answer to every question was Jesus and half the class failed. <laughs> because they, they, they just couldn't get their heads around, you know, Mr. Vitro asking just simple questions. And one of the kids actually came up to me afterwards. He goes, is every answer to this, question, this test Jesus? And I, I went, well, that's for you to decide. You know, I was a frustrating teacher. I didn't, I didn't like to hand things away. But, but this whole idea, here's a conversation. And so often, uh, religion likes to just give short answers instead of invite us into congregation, into conversation. Uh, one of the big deals about apologetics, and this is, I'm not faulting this, but apologetics is basically a systematic defense of the Christian faith. Um, one of the problems with, with apologetics tends to be you learn standardized answers to standardized questions, and when critics or atheists or agnostic people ask questions that you're not ready to answer, you go, hem-haw, you asked the wrong question. I'll never forget the time a Jehovah's Witness came to our, came to our home and was trying to recruit my wife, which was a big mistake. Um, and, uh, and we sat down, and he started asking me his questions, expecting the standard things. Well, your church teaches the Trinity. And, I, and did you know that the Trinity is not in the Bible? And I went, well, technically our church teaches the Godhead, because the word Trinity was created uh, to explain the testimony of Scripture, but it doesn't actually appear in Scripture. But what does appear in Scripture is the Godhead, the unity of God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit. And I started to exegete what the Bible has to say, and how the early church um, inferred and, and developed the idea of the Trinity from it. And this guy sat there and went, <clears throat> And then turned to my wife and said, well, he's not going to be... And he tried to convert... He did. I'm I'm not exaggerating. He turned and tried to convert her in front of me. And I said, it's time for you to leave my house. (laughs) My wife later got a copy of one of his Watchtower magazines, wrote down all the answers with the help of, of Greg Jones. She went through and answered every situation and then went to his house and knocked on his door and gave it to him. You don't mess with the DeVitros, right? You, you just don't mess with us. Um, so anyway, this conversation is opening up. What Jesus has done with his question, he's opened a conversation. People are going to be discussing it. But now look at what happens. The officers, verse 45, the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and said, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law. This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. See what the religious leaders are doing. 
Jesus opens a conversation. People are asking questions. They go, stop asking questions. Stop it. You don't know what you're talking about. Now, here's a weird statement. How do you learn what you're going to talk about? By asking questions. So these supposed intellectual spiritual leaders should have been welcoming this conversation because it opens the door to share the truth with people. The problem is they didn't want the truth. They wanted everybody under their control. There is a difference between truth and control. Now Nicodemus shows up. Ah, Nick. Remember him from chapter 3? Nicky the Pharisee. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them. See how John just keeps bringing all this stuff back. He just keeps cycling around. It's called ring composition. Nicodemus, who had gone, before, gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Nicodemus goes... Why are we in such a hurry to silence this man? See, Nicodemus is on the journey that started with the conversation he had with Jesus. He's walking down the road of this conversation. He's still not sure. And what he's seeing from the religious leaders that he's been around his whole life is they're not willing to ask the question, is Jesus the Christ? They're only asking the question, is Jesus the Christ we want Is he the answer that we're looking for, or is he the answer we need? And Nicodemus kind of goes, well, shouldn't we give him a hearing? Shouldn't we be listening to him with the same respect that we, should, that we listen to one another? Shouldn't we be willing to at least hear him out? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? What a stupid way to respond. Like they are literally using, are you from Galilee as an insult? Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. What a dumb answer. What is their response? His arguments are invalid? Nope. An ad hominem argument. He's a loser from Galilee. Are you a loser from Galilee? Like, what are they, sixth grade girls? What, what is going on here? Like, oh yeah, well, you're ugly. Hmm. I mean, this is literally what they're doing. They don't have a response to him. They don't have, they're not even willing to engage what he's saying. All it would have taken, all it would have taken, if they had been honestly devoted to the God they claim to be devoted to, would be, Jesus, let's sit down and talk about this. Let's hear you out. Not let's try you and see if you're a criminal or not, but let's actually hear what you have to say. They are not listening to the conversation. And as a result, they are not seeing Christ. It is so easy, especially in the modern religious world, it is so easy to not listen, to not engage, not 
devote ourselves to the conversation about Jesus. I grew up in fundamentalism. I grew up in knock on doors, run buses. If you don't know what that means, um, the, the tradition that I grew up in, the whole idea was basically get as many kids as you possibly could. Bus ministry, what this was. It was you would drive around the poor neighborhoods of your area. Now, I grew up in a rural town of 2,000 people, so there were exactly six poor people there. Um, but, but the idea was that you, you drove around with these school buses. You bought a school bus, you painted it with your church colors, and you literally enticed kids to come to church with candy and games. Now, at the same time, I was watching TV on Saturday mornings and get advertisements about not getting into vehicles with strangers who offered you candy and games. So we might have rethought that strategy along the way. Um, But you would try to get a bunch of kids, and you would get them all to church, and you would rah-rah them, and then you would try to get them to say a prayer that they thought that you told everybody made you a Christian, and then you would brag about how many Christian conversions you got. And they were all little kids, almost always little kids, or you did door-to-door evangelism, which was knocking on people's doors, handing them, just like the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's exactly the same, they got it from us, um, knock on the door, um, hand somebody a brochure that if they just read these three points and pray, they're going to go to heaven, right? And, and, and this, was, this was what I grew up in. Uh, this was the culture I grew up in. The, the problem is, I'm not a, I, I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, I, I'm not a point one, point two, point three kind of person. Uh, my my brain is constructed like I just saw a meme on social media. It was like everybody else's brain, and it was this group of North Korean soldiers marching in order, going along. And then it said my brain, and it was. Do you remember the episode? I can't remember which one it was. In Ice Age, when Sid the Sloth meets all the other sloths, and they're just scattered around, rolling on the ground, and they're they're arriving and going in all kinds of different directions. That's how my brain works. So handing me a piece of paper and saying point one, point two, point three, I'm like point one. Point two, orange. Did I leave the iron on? Is this in Russian? What did I miss? All right. So this does not. It didn't work for me. I, I just wasn't. And I wanted to have what I wanted to have was a conversation. I wanted to find out was Jesus worth following. I, I didn't want to have standard fill-in-the-blank answer questions. I, I wanted to say, well, well, what, what, what is it about him that's worth following? How do we know what he says is true? Um, how, why, why should I trust the Bible? Right? What, 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 what value does this have? I wanted to have a conversation. And, and thankfully, my father is just like me. So, um, and, and, and on top of that, he, he's a hippie who did way too, he, before he was a Christian, did way too many drugs. So his brain is kind of burnt out and moves in phases too. So we were able to have these long conversations about this stuff. And because of that, I became a Christian. But I didn't want the standardized questions. Now, not everybody's like me, but this is how I work. But I grew up in a society where you were supposed to offer the standardized questions. Now, you can imagine what it was like for me when I went to Bible college and I was required to go door-to-door sharing the gospel, these little brochures. You know, you were supposed to hit, like, you were supposed to do it for, like, a couple hours a week, and you were supposed to hit, like, like 15 or 20 people an hour or something. I don't remember what it was. It makes it sound like we're assaulting them. No, I just, just handing them. We, we just wanted to get those brochures. Well, I, I would, you know, get up the gumption, because I'm an introvert. I know that shocks people, but get up the gumption to actually knock on somebody's door, and they would open the door, and if in any way, shape, or form, anything interesting happened in the conversation, I'd be standing there for an hour talking to them about their lawn. I just, I just, I wandered off into that 
and I'm like, oh, shoot, I'm supposed to be telling them, giving them this brochure or something. It just never worked for me. But, but give me an opportunity to go on a walk next to the river and just ask a bunch of stupid questions and have a conversation about Jesus. Um, my, my wife will tell you that, that I used to sit in the library of our college and just talk about the Bible and Jesus. That's all I did with the other students. I just wanted to talk about Jesus. I wanted to have a conversation. I wanted to engage in it. I didn't want to be told what to believe. I wanted to have that conversation. And that's what these people want. They want to have a conversation and the, the powers that be are shutting the conversation down because they're afraid. They're afraid of giving up control of other people's beliefs. They're afraid of giving up control of other people's beliefs. They're afraid that if people start listening to Jesus, they might follow Jesus. They're afraid that if they're allowed to have a conversation, their spirituality might not look exactly like the spirituality they want it to look like. But if we're willing to actually step back from authorities like that, we often discover that what they're really doing is going, are you from Galilee too? The confusion, the confusion that they're trying to prevent is actually the conversation that the people need. We want everybody, everything in order and straight and even. And there are things about Scripture that are absolutely in order and straight and even and direct. But then there are some things about the mystery of the gospel that are confusing and timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly. They're not, we can't, it's not concrete, it's abstract it's spiritual, it's, it's nuanced, it's, it's different, it's unusual. And, and we can only really wrap our heads around it by expanding our thinking through conversation. So here's the thing. I... I wonder how many of the people that were on the Temple Mount that day later became followers of Christ after his crucifixion. We don't know. We really don't know. There is a, a, a kind of a standard idea, um, and it seems to play out, uh, that if someone is named in the Gospels, that person later became a part of the early church. So, so for example, uh, the guy Simon, who, who um, um, Simon, right, um, who carries Jesus's cross, right? Um, early church tradition is that he became a leader in the church. Um, and the people like Mary Magdalene and Nicodemus and those people, those people, they eventually became a part of the church. They became believers. When we get into an unnamed crowd like this, we don't know how many of them came to, to faith. But, and we don't know how long it took. But isn't it extraordinary that Jesus started a conversation that took an indeterminate amount of time 
to bear fruition, to bear fruit. And sometimes we just have to set back our desire for instant results and measurable, ta- measurable quantifiable um, numbers and be willing to trust that if we enter into an honest conversation about Jesus, that the Holy Spirit will transform the heart of stone into one that flows with living water. Do we have the confidence in the God we claim to be the creator, sustainer, and redeemer of the world that if we have a real, honest conversation in his time, he will transform the lives of people around us by his power and his word? Or are we trying to lock people down, trying to control the conversation, trying to get everyone in order and in line, looking for the Christ we want and not the Christ that he is? Will you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, we have no authority except what you say in your word. As your church, yours is the only voice that matters. And the things that you say challenge our way of thinking on so many levels when we just listen So many questions, so many thoughts, so many conversations. And it can be frustrating for me and for others to not have answers right away. But Jesus, thank you for the conversation. Thank you that your voice resonates in our hearts and provokes questions. That you are not interested in clones and robots but engaged, intelligent, emotional, connected people in conversation. You have given us this journey to walk with you and your spirit and with others. May we walk it believing that when you speak, the voice that we hear is the voice that one day transforms us, renews us, enlivens us, awakens us. So that when we celebrate the coming of a believer to faith in you through baptism, we celebrate not just consent, but conviction and truth, a true encounter with you. May you be glorified and honored in all we say and do. We pray this in your precious and holy name. My brothers and sisters, go in peace.